cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, January 17th, 2012. Okay, right up front, I got to tell you, we're doing our light edition today. Normally, we'd do it you know, midweek or so. Had to do it a day early just because of all the challenges we've been trying to overcome and what my schedule's like for the rest of the week. Don't worry, tomorrow our uh, coverage of the Heresy Olympics, the Category 5 Heresy Hurricane that's parked over Charlotte, North Carolina. We will continue our coverage of that tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result we have to do the comparative work. See if what people are saying actually squares with Scripture and uh, and, and and basically sound exegetical hermeneutical principles or if what's going on is, well, squirrely, uh, you know, narcissistic, weird stuff going on in the church today, just strange things going on. And uh, yeah, people are exalting... Uh, the cult of personalities and, uh, you know, pastoral personalities at that above Christ. And it's really, really dangerous stuff. And so we cover that here in the program and, and just do the discernment work. And in some senses, if you're, if you're new to the program and you've never heard anything like this where, um, a lot, I spend a lot of time really sitting in and listening carefully to what somebody's saying, saying, no, that's not what the scripture says. That's not what that's going on. It's kind of a debunking work. It, it can be grating and like a cold bucket of water. Hang in there, get used to it. Um, and you know, it's what we do here. And it's not because uh, I hate you or I'm a hater or something like that. It's actually because I love you. I, what's funny is, is that, uh, you know, when I've been tweeting about the uh, Code Orange revival, um, from time to time, I get somebody from Elevation who will send me an email or uh, fire a shot back at me. And uh, one gal sent me a, a private email from, from her phone. And she's all, you know, so that's what you think of us, you hater. You know, and, it, and it's like, so I sent her an email back. I said, listen, if I hated you, I would actually just sit silently and do nothing, say nothing, and just let you, you know, let this uh, bad false doctrine lead you to hell. And uh, she didn't actually expect. And so, and then I signed it, "Love Chris Rosebro." And so she emailed me back, and we had a little bit of an exchange. And and you know, it'll be interesting to see what what comes of it. But uh, the idea here is is that it's not hateful to point out that what somebody is preaching is false doctrine. That the that it may be your pastor. It, it, it's not hateful to point that out. It's actually hateful to say nothing, to not even begin to raise so much as a peep. Uh, of warning that uh, what you may be taught in your church is not what the scriptures teach, and it's not pointing you to Christ. It's not sound doctrine. It's false doctrine. Um, it would be hateful to do nothing, to sit on my hands to say nothing. So uh, we love people by, well, warning them, warning them to take a, a more careful look, uh, do some more scrutinizing, compare what people are saying in, in God's name or attributing to God or making it sound like God is promising and compare it to what God's word actually says 
to see if it really squares. If it does, it'll point you to Christ. If it does, it will rightly handle God's word. If it doesn't, it will more than likely point you to yourself or something else and uh, not really emphasize what Christ has done, but constantly beat you over the head uh, with apparently what you haven't done. And, and the list changed. You know, that, you know, when I was growing up, you know, a Christian was somebody who didn't smoke, chew, or go with girls that do, or attend particular, you know, ratings of movies, or watch television, or things like that, or only listen to particular types of music. You know, that's a law list. Um, you know, but you know, that's not exactly synonymous with what Scripture calls us to, as far as uh, you know, obeying God's law and sanctification. And if you're going to rightly understand law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, it also requires you to understand the proper place of sanctification in the Christian life because Christians are called to do good works. The question is, what are those good works? Um, And so, you know, is a good work not smoking? Maybe, maybe not. But uh, more than likely, we need to go with what the clear list says. A good work is something like... Um, moms changing poopy diapers, uh, dads loving their wives and 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 not exacerbating their uh, uh, their children, you know things like that. Uh, we need to look at what the scriptures clearly teach what a good work is, and not invent our own lists. And so, anyway, that, that what the, that's what this program is about. Now we've had a little bit of a challenge, um, really since the weekend. Um, we oh man. Um, our servers have been slammed. Uh, to to say that a certain episodes of Fighting for the Faith have gone viral would well that would actually be an understatement. Uh, yesterday alone, uh, we we clocked on our, our server and it was having a hard time chugging this out. Um, it spewed out seven terabytes of uh, of data, uh, you know, from people downloading our program. Now we haven't ascertained whether or not. Uh, you know, what the total human beings who downloaded programs are, and we haven't exactly figured out as whether or not there was a denial of service attack involved in all of that. All I can say is that yesterday was crazy because I had to spend a lot of the day getting an, uh, a couple of new servers online, and we had to get dedicated servers with particular types of firewall protection against denial of service attacks and and things like that. And uh, just bringing them online was uh, a little bit more of a challenge than I thought. Um, anyway, we're, they're online, and we're, I think that things are kind of smoothing out. And, you know, of course, when you do something like that, of course, now we <laughs> we have now uh, committed ourselves to a, a greater amount of money uh, going out of the program here on a monthly basis. But, hey, it needed to be done. And the good news is is that if this is just some kind of a temporary spike, we can scale back. So we'll see what happens. But uh, anyway, just want to let you all know that uh, those of you who've been uh, sending me Facebook messages and emails saying, hey, I'm having a hard time downloading the program, uh, yeah, we understand that. And, and what we have noticed is, is that we have been getting new people uh, listening to the program, and they've actually been going through and like downloading like almost all of the episodes that we have available in our podcast stream. And so that's created some uh, some <laughs> – funky distortions in our traffic so we're still trying to figure out you know when this is all done where it's going to level out at so um yeah anyway just wanted to let you all know that uh, we're aware of the technical problems we think we've got most of them under control we're still in the process of trying to work through some of them so here's what we're going to do on today's edition of fighting for the faith what we're going to do is it's been a while since i've uh, played any apologetic lectures from uh, ken samples <clears throat> ken samples teaches at Christ Reformed Church out there in Anaheim, California. And uh and and, uh, and he he's a, he's shown himself over the years to be just a fine fine world-class apologist. And uh and so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, play one of his lectures entitled Is Jesus a man, a myth, a madman, a menace, a mystic, a Martian or the Messiah? That's right. You know, notice the overdone alliteration there. That's it. Let me read that again just because it's so much fun. Is Jesus a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, Martian, or the Messiah? And it's an apologetics lecture that he delivered back in November of last year, so just a couple of months ago. And so, uh, you know, I'm excited to turn the microphone over to uh, Ken Samples and uh, hope that you are edified and your apologetic understanding of how to defend the historic Christian Orthodox faith is enhanced and uh, expanded as a result of uh, Ken's lecture. So without any further ado, here's Ken Samples. Good evening. We're going to be 
talking about uh, this approach that we have been taking for the last couple weeks uh, in this series, uh, looking at Christianity and the truth of our faith from the standpoint of being the best explanation. Uh, we call that abductive thinking. And tonight I'd like to approach this in terms of the person of Jesus Christ. So my individual lecture is entitled, Is Jesus a Man, Myth, Madman, Menace, Mystic, Martian, or the Messiah? So we will look at the alternatives. Jesus, of course, is seen within the historic Christian context as the divine Messiah. We'll look at the alternatives, and our approach is to show that uh, the best explanation for the life of Jesus Christ is that he is, in fact, uh, God in human flesh, a single person with both a divine and human nature, uh, the divine Messiah as he is referred to. So let's talk a little bit about the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. Uh, that title goes back to the Old Testament. And while you would think Son of Man would be a reference to humanity, it's actually a reference to deity. So we focus on Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? What is his true identity? Jesus himself challenges people to think about the question in the gospel accounts. And here's Matthew 16:13 through 15, where Jesus says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And so Jesus was inquiring among his apostles the question, who is the Messiah? Who is it that you think uh, I am? Uh, here is, of course, a, an ancient icon. The Eastern Orthodox Church is very different than the Western churches, the Western churches being made up of both Protestant and Catholic churches. The Eastern Church is a very visual church. And so they use images. And so some of these images go back very far in church history. The Western churches view uh, it in an audio way, that they are, they are to hear the word of God, to hear the word of God preached. And so you see some of those ancient symbols going back a very long time. Historic Christianity is all about Jesus. Uh, it's about his identity, his message, his mission. For two millennia, the Christian church has viewed Jesus as the divine Messiah, whose life, death, and resurrection are God's means for forgiving repentant sinners. At the heart of the Christian faith is the assertion that Jesus, precisely because he is God incarnate, can indeed provide redemption on the cross for human beings. And so historic Christianity really is a faith that unpackages itself. The Trinity makes the incarnation possible. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos, takes to himself a human nature. And as we look forward to the Advent season or to Christmas season, the Trinity makes the incarnation possible. But it is the incarnation, Jesus being God and man, that then makes the atonement possible. Jesus, because he is God and man, can represent God and man and can achieve atonement for lost sinners. But is it intellectually credible in the 21st century, to believe that Jesus Christ was actually God in the flesh, God incarnate? Are there other acceptable alternatives to his identity? If Christianity's central truth claim that Jesus is God stands the test of reason and history, then faith is powerfully warranted. And this, of course, is what I've been talking about in this series of lectures, that I think that there's a very powerful way of reasoning about the truth of our faith. And that is that Christianity makes sense of the meaningful realities of life. Without it, these realities are left with, without a clear meaning and purpose. And of course, one of the things that Christianity does a good job of explaining is the person of Jesus uh, himself. Jesus, again, is seen as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Historic Christianity is all about Christ who he was, and what he did. So let's talk a bit here from a scriptural basis about Jesus being God. I mean, there are people, the Jesus Seminar, 
There are people, uh, biblical scholars, who are much more liberal in their theological orientation. They simply say Jesus never claimed to be God. He didn't have a divine consciousness. Uh, He was simply a human being. And they, of course, come at these issues from a very different point of view. I would say, however, that what we find in an honest reading of Scripture is that Jesus clearly viewed himself as God. That he equated himself with the Father, with Yahweh, with God. And we see this in in powerful ways that Jesus gave the direct impression to people that to encounter him is to encounter Yahweh. To relate to Jesus, you're relating to Yahweh. You're relating to God. How does he do that? Well, to know Jesus is to, is to know God. In John 14, 7, Jesus says, If you knew me, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. The implication is Jesus is the doorway to have any kind of relationship with God at all. There's another passage in John 14:9, just a couple of verses later. To see Jesus is to see God. Jesus says, quote, in verse 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How could a mere man say that to, to view him is to, to view God unless he saw himself as God? Here's another passage in John 14:1. Jesus conveys the idea that to trust in Jesus is to trust in God. Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. Put all of your confidence in Yahweh. Put equal confidence in who I am. That is a claim to deity. He is equating himself with Yahweh, with the God of the Old Testament, with the God of the Jewish people. To honor Jesus is to honor God. John 5.23, Jesus says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That is utter blasphemy unless it's true. Jesus obviously saw himself associating with God. Uh, And we can flip it. We can put it in the negative. To hate Jesus is to hate God. John 15.23, he who hates me hates my Father as well. So the only way you can have a relationship with God is to go through Jesus. And the Father and the Son are on equal footing. A second uh, component in this discussion of whether Jesus viewed himself as God is that Jesus made direct claims that many Jewish religious leaders considered blasphemous. Uh, Here is uh, one of those passages in John 5, 17 and 18. Jesus said to them, My Father... Notice that he says, my father, instead of our father. The Jewish community would have referred to Yahweh as our father. They didn't talk often about God being father, but they did. But it was always our father. Jesus seems to be making a special claim. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So John here is recording this discussion, this consciousness that uh, Jesus has. So Jesus didn't speak of God as our father, but as my father, implying an intimate, special relationship that nobody else had. Nobody else had. Here's another passage, and I think this is uh, this is the strongest passage, I think, in terms of Jesus expressing his own divinity. John 8, 58 and 59, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. And as we began looking at this passage, I think this is, this is the way a first century Jew would claim to be God. Jesus uses the I am, the, the Greek is ego uh, It was tantamount to saying that he was God, for he was applying to himself one of the most sacred of divine expressions from the Old Testament. Yahweh had specifically referenced himself as I am or I am he. And here I would encourage you to check Isaiah 41 through 48. We often think of the expression I am in the Old Testament to Exodus 
uh, 3, where, where uh, Moses has his pay-to-take with the Almighty. But in actuality, it is the book of Isaiah that, I, that identifies God as I am or I am he. Here's one of those passages, Isaiah 41.4. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, Yahweh, anytime in the English Bible you have Lord in all caps, that's their way of indicating that it's Yahweh. I, the Lord, with the first of them, and I, the last, I am he. Again, this expression, this claim, I am here. Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses. This, by the way, is the passage that the Jehovah's Witnesses take as their model. As Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Jehovah, of course, is uh, uh, not a Hebrew name. It comes uh, down uh, via the German. But you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, or the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be after me. And here's one more passage, Isaiah 48:12. Listen to me, O Jacob, uh, Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Any person who was familiar with these passages and listened to Jesus' words would realize that he was reaching into the Old Testament and making a divine claim. Now, a third point I think that needs to be made about Jesus claiming to be God is that he indirectly claims to be God by invoking divine prerogatives. There are certain things only God can do. Certain things only God can do. Jesus claims to be able to do the things that only God can do. He claims to do the things that are exclusively reserved for God alone. So Jesus claims to do that which is exclusively reserved for God. Uh, in Mark 2, 5 through 7, he claims to forgive people's sins, even sins that are not committed against himself. In Matthew 28, 16 through 17, he receives the worship of other people. In John 5, 21, he says that he will raise the dead. And then in the next verse, John 5, 22, he claims that he will be the judge of humanity. Well, all of these things, forgiving sin, receiving worship, raising the dead, judging humanity, in a Jewish context, in a biblical context, only God does those things. And yet Jesus claims to do the very things that only God can do. So we talk about Jesus as the Christos in Greek. And uh, this image that you're looking at is uh, it's ancient uh, decorative work focusing on the person of of Jesus Christ. Now, we of course have been talking about um, the best explanation. What is the best explanation for these issues? Maybe there are other ways of explaining the life of Jesus of Nazareth without seeing him as God incarnate. But how does one determine the best explanation of a series of facts and events? And here, of course, is what we have been talking about. Alternative explanations And uh, many people are not aware that there are three ways of reasoning in logic, deductive, inductive, and abductive. Abduction, or inference to the best explanation, is a method of reasoning in which one chooses the hypothesis that would, if true, best explain the relevant evidence. Abductive reasoning starts from a set of accepted facts and infers their most likely or best explanation. So I'm utilizing a special form of reasoning here that I think is very powerful, not only in looking at things like the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning in the universe uh, and many other areas, but it also applies to the question of the person of Christ. So let's do, again, uh, a little review of the logic lesson we've been talking about for a couple weeks. Uh, the abductive reasoning is reasoning to the best explanatory hypothesis. And you may ask yourself, what is the best explanatory hypothesis? I mean, if we were to look at uh, uh, next Tuesday is the anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. If we were to say, well, what is the best explanation for the Kennedy assassination? Was it a lone gunman? 
Or is there a better explanation that involves some type of conspiracy? How would we evaluate the best explanation? We would ask the question, is that theory, is that approach coherent? Is it logically consistent? Does it correspond to the facts? Does it fit with the facts? Does it avoid presumption? Does it possess explanatory power and scope? These are the kinds of questions logically that we would be asking. So again, in terms of review, who would use abductive reasoning? Uh, principally people that we would call diagnosticians. Moving from facts or data or events to a coherent, plausible explanation. And lots of people, I, I'm not appealing to a form of reasoning that is obscure. Uh, this is a very normal way in which people reason. Detectives, crime scene investigators reason this way. They move from evidence to some kind of theory as to the explanation of that evidence. Historians do it. They move from facts to explanations. Scientists, even though there's a little bit of a difference here with science, science often appeals to the inductive and the predictive element. In abductive, there's no appeal to the, uh, the future prediction. But scientists, by and large, reason this way. They move from, a date, from the data to a hypothesis, which is an attempt to explain the data. Doctors, of course, using the scientific method, evaluate the symptoms of a patient and draw a diagnosis. And then even a mechanic. My father um, was a truck mechanic, and uh, he would listen to an engine and identify what the problems were with the engine from hearing and observing uh, the symptoms, so to speak, in an engine and then drawing what the solution was. All of this reasoning is abductive in nature, moving from uh, the data and asking uh, what is the best explanation. Um, Sherlock Holmes reasoned this way, looking at evidence, coming up with the best explanation. So abductive validation is the process of validating a given hypothesis through abductive reasoning. Under this principle, an explanation is valid if it is the best possible explanation for a set of known data. The best possible explanation is often defined in terms of simplicity or elegance. Sometimes that's referred to as Occam's razor. Occam was a medieval Christian philosopher who said the best explanation is the one that explains all of the data in the simplest way. It's got to explain all the data, but it's the one that has the, the best uh, or the simplest approach. Okay. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. And, uh, <clears throat> and when we come back, we'll continue with the lecture. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind, never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Megachurch and Make Big Bucks? 
I well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no, well, we haven't gotten instructor. <sighs> oh well, not to worry, not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes, C.S. Lewis. No, I beg your pardon. No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letters. No, sir, all of our screw tape letters have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. All right. How about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. Mm, the Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. <sighs> Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. And perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent But Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I-, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I-, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it! It's here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Cabinet's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I, I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your... Wait! Wait! What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Rosebrough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, he's not a good guy at all. Like, like really, really bad guy. You shouldn't listen to him. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, he's, an, he's a nut. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, when you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, back to our lecture from Ken Samples. Is Jesus a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, Martian, or the Messiah? Here's Ken Samples. Talking about this reasoning and then in a few minutes applying it to the claims of Jesus, there are things you have to look out for when you begin reasoning. And one of them is the false alternatives fallacy. This is failing to entertain all of the plausible alternative explanations. Some of you uh, un undoubtedly will be familiar with Josh McDowell, who wrote the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He wrote a very popular book, More Than a Carpenter. Uh, both of those books have sold into the million. And uh, Josh McDowell is known for developing what he called the trilemma. And it simply goes this way. Because Jesus claimed to be God, he must either be, and then he gives three alternatives. Since he claimed to be God, he must, one, be a lunatic, because only lunatics would claim to be God if they're not, and people who have a God mentality or make claims to God often end up in a mental institution, or he was a liar, or number three, was Lord. Uh, Lord, liar, lunatic, the trilemma. Some people have criticized, however, McDowell, and not only McDowell, but they've also criticized C.S. Lewis, who was largely the one to first de develop this kind of reasoning. Uh, the, the criticism is maybe they have uh, not entertained all of the possible alternatives. For example, the Jesus Seminar would say maybe there's an easier explanation. Maybe he's merely a legend. Maybe the story we have is legendary. And so they've ignored a viable alternative. Um, I think to be fair to Lewis and McDowell, they do talk about other views, but they're kind of focusing in on what do we do with Jesus and, and where do we go? The false alternatives fallacy can be avoided by giving careful consideration to a wider range of options as long as they constitute plausible explanations. So what I've done is I've taken Lewis's analysis, Lewis and McDowell's analysis, and I've developed it. So it would also be fallacious to stubbornly reserve judgment concerning a reasonable explanatory hypothesis just because a person hasn't exhausted all possible or conceivable alternatives. Uh, now, let's, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about his life and his influence. One possible explanation is that the deity claims, the claims to deity that Jesus makes, maybe they were placed in his mouth. Maybe he never made them. And so the first alternative is that Jesus 
is a myth, a traditional story or tale that has no proven factual basis. It's a fable. It's a legend. Jesus never made these claims. So this is called the myth hypothesis. Jesus' followers placed the messianic claims in his mouth long after the fact. Thus, Jesus' claims to divinity are mythical. How do we respond to that? Is that a viable, plausible, reasonable alternative? Uh, I argue that it is not. It is not plausible. It is not reasonable. How so? Since the Gospels were written fairly soon after the events they record within a generation, time wasn't sufficient to allow for the legends and myths. If you do a little uh, time frame here, Jesus' death is almost universally fixed at 30 A.D. Uh, some of Paul's writings, uh, for example, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, were written in the 40s, the early 50s. Uh, Galatians may have been as early as 47 A.D. And the Gospels were written in the 60s. So the problem with the myth hypothesis is that the basic testimony that we get from the writings of the New Testament appears too quickly. It's too closely associated with the events that they describe. The biblical writers recognize the difference between myth and factual eyewitness testimony, and they solemnly asserted to be eyewitnesses to Jesus' claims and actions. In fact, look at this passage written by Peter, 2 Peter 1.16. Peter is very candid about this. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. It's interesting, the Greek word, mythos. Mythos. Peter knew what a myth was. We did not follow cleverly invented stories or myths when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter was merely a fisherman, but he was sufficiently familiar with the difference between an eyewitness and a mythical or legendary story. The followers of Jesus had no reason to deify a mere man. A first century monotheistic Jews they knew such blasphemous claims would result in persecution, martyrdom, and even the damnation of their souls. If they made up all this, not only would, they, would the Jewish authorities, religious authorities, persecute them, but these were, after all, people who believed in Yahweh. And if they created a myth and worshipped a mere man, they would be in very serious trouble. If the apostles had exaggerated or outright invented a divine Christ, given the early date of the Gospels, hostile witnesses who were still around would have undoubtedly exposed them as liars. If the followers of Jesus invented a Messiah, they would likely have created one that corresponds to the Jewish messianic expectations of the time, a political deliverer. That's a very powerful point. If you're going to make up a story you're probably going to make up a Messiah that is the Messiah you're expecting to come. But they didn't. The expectation of the Messiah was a political religious leader, not a suffering servant. First and early second century scholars and Jewish sources, historians, government officials, religious writers, they report general information about the life and ministry of Jesus that corresponds and corroborates the gospel message. So let's suppose the apostles want to make all this up. The problem is there are other people writing at the same time. There are Jewish authorities, Roman authorities, who write about Jesus. Tacitus in, is a Roman historian. Suetonius, another Roman historian. Josephus, a Jewish historian. Why the younger Roman governor, the Talmud, a Jewish uh commentary on the Old Testament, all of these people write about Jesus at the end of the first, beginning of the second century. Uh, here is a number of others. Now, here's the problem. If the Jews, if the apostles had invented all of this stuff, here are uh, authorities who lived at that time, and they describe Jesus. They say that he was from Galilee. They say that he was an extraordinary teacher. 
Uh, they say that he was a miracle worker. The, these are the things they were hearing. Now, these are not primary documents, but, but these people are encountering Christians and they say things like, they hear things told to them that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that his closest uh, followers say he was risen from the dead, and that this story of, of the resurrection and the gospel message about Jesus as the Messiah had reached all the way into Rome. So here's my point. Um, everything that these people write about Jesus is consistent with what we see in the New Testament. So if all of this was made up, uh, the problem is that there are other people who have heard about these things. So there is certainly a confirmation that goes along with it. Uh, the, the myth hypothesis, it ignores historical sources that stand behind the Gospels, both oral and written. It doesn't comport with the narrow time constraints. It's rooted in unsupported anti-supernatural presuppositions. So mythologizing Jesus is therefore an implausible, inadequate explanatory hypothesis. Now, before I move on to the next alternative, let me tell you another reason for believing that the Gospels and the Epistles were written very, very early. Uh, there are a number of things that happened during the 60s of the first century and all the way up to 70 AD. And all of these events would be very, very important for Christians. But there's no mention there's, there's no mention of the great persecution by the Romans of the Christian in the 60s, the Neronian persecution. I mean, you, you've read the book of Acts. You've read the Gospels. Christians were very sensitive to, to the issue of being persecuted. No mention of the Neronian persecution. Now, I would suspect that if they knew about that, they would have put it in the book of Acts. There's also, by the way, no mention of the death of two very important people in the 60s, 62 to 66 A.D., Peter and, John, uh, Peter and Paul were executed. Now, since the book of Acts is in many ways kind of a running commentary on the ministry of Peter and Paul, wouldn't you think they would have mentioned their, the death of those two men? But it doesn't. And then finally, when Titus came in uh, to Jerusalem, and uh, took apart the city. I would tell you that I think the reason that the Gospels and the Book of Acts don't mention that and the Epistles don't mention it, here's why. Because they were already in print. They had already been written. That is, they were likely written in the late 50s, maybe in the early 60s. Mythologizing Jesus is not a viable alternative. There's too much history about the, the person of Christ. Now, maybe he was just a man. Maybe he was just a man. Maybe he was just a, a, a great leader. He was a powerful leader. So how about a mere man, a mere human being, a good and decent person? I mean, that's a very, that you don't have to give in to supernaturalism. You can just adopt the view that Jesus was a man. So we'll call this the man hypothesis, the mere man hypothesis. Jesus was simply a great man, even a great teacher, but he wasn't God. He wasn't God. Is this a viable view? I would argue it is not. Viewing Jesus as merely a great man is intellectually untenable on two basic accounts. A person cannot be a great man if he is only a man and makes the kinds of assertions that Jesus made about himself for he would be a megalomaniac. Let me read you what Jesus says. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I mean, what would you do if your pastor said these things about himself? If Jesus is merely a man, a good man, a great man, is not going to say these kind of, these things that make himself out to be some kind of divinity. 
A person cannot be a great man if he's only a man and do the things that Jesus did. What, what did he do? Not only did he make these great claims about himself, but he claims to forgive the sins of other people. He allowed people to worship him. I mean, if he was a great man, he said, look, hey, don't worship me. Worship God. Peter does that. Uh, Peter is in an evangelistic context, and the pagans start to worship. He says, slow down. Worship God. Jesus allows people to worship him. He claims that he's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge humanity. If Jesus were a good man, he wouldn't say these exaggerated claims, and he would not do these things if you were a good or a decent man. A great man who is only a man would not say the things that Jesus said nor do the things that he did. If Jesus claimed to be God but was just a man, then he was perhaps a morally bad man or a mentally sick man, but he certainly was not a great man. You can't take the historical records about Jesus and legitimately come to the conclusion that he was just a great man. He was either an evil man, a menace, or he was a psychologically ill man. So let's pick up that first one. Maybe Jesus was a menace. Um, you know, we've, we've had some evil religious leaders. Uh, I wrote a book about David Koresh. I think David Koresh was uh, motivated by power, uh, by sexual lust, by money. Uh, go back a little further, you have Father Divine. Uh, does anybody remember Jim Jones and the People's Temple? Uh, there have been some manipulative, controlling, deceitful people who've re used religion. So the idea here is, is Jesus a menace, a deceiver, a threat, a troublemaker? The menace hypothesis would say that Jesus claimed to be the divine Messiah, but he knew he was not. He was therefore an intentional deceiver, an evil menace. Is it viable, is it plausible to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a menace? I would say this is not an acceptable hypothesis. To consider Jesus an evil menace is to create a deep and profound dissonance, a conflict. To think of Jesus as an evil person goes against everything we know about him. He has an exemplary personal and moral character. None of that's true of the people that I've mentioned. Jesus transcends the frail and imperfect human moral condition. Jesus never exhibited even a trace of moral weakness, even when challenged, arrested, and crucified. Look, um, when, when the pressure is on, that's when you begin to see the kind of character that people have. Jesus faces persecution. He faces trial under the religious authorities of Israel. He's publicly crucified, and we never see him balk. We never see him lose his poise. Uh, Jesus is the, is the moral standard by which the Western world uh, talks about ethical theory. Diabolical deceivers leave clues especially with their intimate followers. But Jesus met every circumstance with courage, honesty, and resounding moral virtue. The one of the reasons that I'm a follower of Jesus is he is fundamentally different than any and every person I have ever met. He does not act like the rest of us. Jesus' moral example and teachings laid the foundation for ethical theory in Western civilization. When we talk about holiness, we talk about being Christ-like. Is any of this consistent with him being a deceiver? No. Is it reasonable to conclude that the person who arguably had the greatest impact on human history in terms of moral virtue was in reality a colossal liar? This, this creates a dissonance. History, reason, and common sense voice a resounding no. Jesus is not a menace. If he's not a menace, maybe he was seriously mentally ill. I mean, I, I've, I've met people uh, who 
were psychologically imbalanced and they exaggerated a lot of things. So was Jesus a a madman? Was he crazy? Was he imbalanced? Was he a fanatic? Call this the madman hypothesis. Jesus thought he was a divine Messiah, but he wasn't. He was delusional. He was psychotic. He was a madman. This is also a, a explanation that's not plausible. Uh, Jesus, of all people, seems to have had a secure grip on reality. He consistently exhibited a profound mental and emotional stability. If, there any, if there's anybody that had strong mental health, it was Jesus. In every crisis he confronted, whether being mocked and interrogated, undergoing torture or crucifixion, Jesus' mind reflected an amazing clarity, sobriety, and underlying emotional stability. You know, uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans used to talk about crucifixion. And some of the Roman and uh, Greek leaders said that it was barbaric. Imagine undergoing the, the terror and the pain of crucifixion. And yet Jesus never, never loses this clarity, this sobriety. This stability. Of course, some people would say, you know, mental illness is not an all or nothing thing. Couldn't Jesus have been wrong about being God without being a certifiable lunatic? Mental illness isn't an all or nothing proposition. It's measured in degrees. Father Divine, Jim Jones, David Koresh made divine claims, but they weren't outright insane. The Dalai Lama leader of the Tibetan monks, claims to be the reincarnation of a Buddha-like figure, but he was considered sane enough to receive the 1989 Nobel Peace Prize. But Jesus, so, so here, let me place the context. Um, the Dalai Lama thinks he's the reincarnation of the Buddha, and they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize. So maybe you can be, maybe you can be uh, religiously kooky, but not necessarily be uh, a lunatic. The difference, though, between Jesus and the Dalai Lama, Jesus claims to be God in human flesh within the context of Jewish monotheism. The claim dwarfs the claim made by the Dalai Lama, who only really claims to be a man with an enlightened consciousness. Uh, I think you could make a case that the Buddha probably didn't believe in any God at all. Theravada Buddhism, which is the most primitive form of Buddhism, is godless. Jesus' claims to deity within Judaism carry greater magnitude and much greater risk. Jesus shows no sign of being the least bit unstable or an outright fraud like Divine, Jones, and Koresh. Jesus couldn't be a madman, for he transcends all categories concerning human mental health, emotional stability, and moral virtue. Well, we're running out of alternatives here. Uh, He can't be a great man. He is not a myth or a legend. He can't be a great man. The ideas of him being a menace or him being a madman are not reasonable theories. They're not plausible. So in the 20th century, uh, the West received uh, people who held very religious views, but Eastern religious views. So that now there are a whole group of people who say that you should understand Jesus' divinity in light of Eastern mysticism. So maybe Jesus was a guru. He was a shaman. He was a sage. The mystic hypothesis. Jesus claimed to be divine, but he meant it in an Eastern mystical sense that all human beings are divine. He was therefore a mystical guru. Is this a viable theory? It's not. The hypothesis is highly implausible for three basic reasons. There's no evidence that Jesus ever visited the East. Um, Jesus' teaching uh, is very different than the East. Uh, In fact, this New Age claim that Jesus went East is lacking in evidence. What we know from the New Testament is that Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary, that uh, he studied the Torah, that he was taught 
the Old Testament. Uh, there's no viable evidence that he was ever gone to India and various other places. And a second point is his teaching as an Orthodox Jew, it contradicts Eastern mysticism. Jesus doesn't believe in things like pantheism, all is God and God is all. Jesus doesn't believe in reincarnation or mystical enlightenment. He's a Jew. He, he recites the Shema, believes in the Old Testament. And then thirdly, Jesus never interpreted the Bible esoterically as New Agers often do. There is no good reason to believe that Jesus was a New Ager or a mystic. So now we're, we're kind of looking for other alternatives. And while this last alternative may seem a little wild to you, I can assure you there are a lot of people who believe this. They believe that Jesus was an extraterrestrial. He was a messenger from outer space. So we'll call this the Martian hypothesis. Jesus claimed to be God, but in actuality he was a Martian. That is, he was an extraterrestrial. Uh, but the extraterrestrial theory is not viable. It's not credible. It's not credible for three basic reasons. Jesus was a real man. Of course, historic Christianity says he was more than a man. He was the God-man. He wasn't a visitor from space. Jesus' teaching condemns the occult practices characterized in UFO religions. All you have to do is to study some of the UFO cults or religions, and you will immediately uh, become aware that they're occult in nature. They, that they affirm a basic occultism. Uh, Jesus' teaching condemns occultism. The extraterrestrial hypothesis concerning Jesus, is, concerning UFOs as metallic crafts uh, visiting the earth, that suffers insurmountable scientific, philosophical, and evidential problems. The best explanation the most viable explanation, the most reasonable explanation, is that Jesus really was the Messiah. Uh, the, the word Messiah means anointed one, the, the one who was sent to earth by God. Uh, he is, as Christians refer to him, as our Lord and our Savior, God incarnate. So let's, again, using... Abductive reasoning, according to a fair-minded reading of the New Testament, Jesus is considered God in human flesh, the divine Messiah. If a person doesn't arbitrarily presume a naturalistic viewpoint, which rejects the supernatural, then Jesus being God incarnate emerges as the superior explanatory hypothesis. And he has other credentials to go with it. Matchless personal character, a master teacher, his influence upon human history is incalculable. The most influential uh, institution in the history of the world is the historic Christian church. His fulfillment of prophecy, his ability to perform the miraculous, and then culminated in his bodily resurrection from the dead, testify to the truth. So the view that Jesus is the divine Messiah is consistent with the facts. It's coherent, it's testable, it possesses genuine explanatory power and scope. And so in light of his legacy, it seems reasonable to ask today the same penetrating question that he asked his disciples. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And I think that, uh, I think that this form of reasoning is very, very powerful. Uh, we simply allow people to say, okay, if you don't accept the historic Christian explanation for Christ, what's your alternative? And none of those alternatives are viable or plausible or reasonable. And so we're left with a divine Messiah. We're left with the best explanation that, as amazing as it is, it's an amazing thing that astronauts would walk on the moon in 1969. But if the Bible is true, a more amazing thing happened. God walked on the earth. And to encounter Jesus is to encounter uh, God in human flesh.
Mm, great lecture. So what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>